Hello, and welcome to the Reorient Podcast, the show about international issues and international people with an Asian twist. My name is Jesse Friedlander. And I'm Madhavi Peters, also known as The Tropicalist. Today is April 30th, 2021. I have the pleasure here of being with a friend of mine who I've known for quite a long time, who's a wonderful man and a wonderful research analyst named Nirgunan Tiruchilvam. <laughs> Did I get that right? Absolutely. Okay. I feel pressure when I say these names. And um, uh, welcome, Nirgunan. It's a great pleasure to be on this uh, podcast, Jesse, and congratulations to you and your colleagues for setting this up. Well, thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to have you. And um, it's very timely because you've been a... Um, you know, a, a research analyst for many decades and uh, have seen various cycles and you know a lot about the Asia region, probably the Asia Pacific region, not to mention, you know, a lot about the rest of the world. You studied at Oxford, uh, that esteemed institution, and you're very knowledgeable about European and U.S. Uh, economic affairs and business, etc. But uh, you've published a book, which we'll be speaking about. Uh, look forward to that. But um, before we sort of get into any specific issues, Nirgunan, would you share with our listeners a little bit about your background, um, you know, where you grew up and what sort of eventually led you to become a, an equity analyst? Sure, Jesse. Jesse, um, first of all, it's a great pleasure to be on your show, having known you. I think we first started speaking in 2006. And uh, lots of things have happened since then. <laughs> Indeed. And my journey began uh, where I was born in Sri Lanka, but I went to boarding school, an international boarding school in India. Mm. Uh, it's uh, a school that was one of the three American schools in India at the time and still is. It was uh, formed by American missionaries about 120 years ago. And uh, they had students from, say, 35 countries. It's kind of like the international schools that you get in. Singapore and Hong Kong and a number of other places in Asia. Mm -hmm. However, it was completely residential. Uh, so I had the opportunity of interacting with people from different countries. And then I studied, as you pointed out, in the UK. I studied uh, politics, philosophy, and economics, which is an interdisciplinary program in the humanities. One of the key aspects of the program is that it's uh, been the training ground for people in the civil service as well as in politics and uh, finance so it's uh, it doesn't really teach you anything in particular except a method of thinking how to think well uh, that yeah. should be a good skill <laughs> yes so the people who study some of these humanities programs at say oxford or some of the american universities have the intellectual tools to go on and understand things in finance and in government in there so take us from your um, sort of when you finished up at uh, Oxford and then your journey into becoming a, an equity research analyst. Yes. Uh, I joined the industry by joining a firm called Crosby. Crosby in those days was a uh, brokerage slash investment bank. It was active in all the key Asian markets, founded by a guy called Tim Beardson. And uh, not long after I joined them, a couple of years after I joined them on the investment banking side, I was actually based out of Colombo, Sri Lanka, for a, year, a couple of years. Uh, I then moved to Singapore. And soon after I joined in Singapore, or just before I joined in Singapore, 
the French bank Societe Generale bought it over. So it became known as SOCGEN. And Crosby, as I recall, had a, a, a huge footprint across Asia, including many frontier markets. So it must have been a really exciting firm to work for. Yes. In those days, the word frontier wasn't used very much. But uh, certainly, Crosby had a massive footprint in the emerging markets. Yes. And in those days, we're talking about the mid-90s or the late 90s, leading up to the crisis, uh, the main markets in Asia were in Southeast Asia. Yes. Uh, we, we were talking about things like Thailand, Indonesia, Malaysia. Philippines, right? The Philippines. Yeah. So those- I recall it, looking it, in terms of market capitalization, in terms of turnover, those markets were, were really big in those days. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it was only in 95 that China actually opened uh, the Shenzhen market and uh, share trading in China became commonplace. I believe we can fact check that, but if I'm not mistaken, they, they actually opened in 91 or okay. um, maybe on an experimental basis. There were a couple of phases. Sure. Um, but in any case, sort of Southeast Asian equity markets were very active in those days. What were sort of the thematics that you and your colleagues were working on uh, back in the mid, mid-90s? I was on the investment banking side to start with. The thematics that dominated Asia in those days was... Telecommunications was a very prominent thing because yes. uh, if somebody analyzed, let's say, the Kale market or the Thai market, the Bangkok market, it was commonplace to present the market capitalization with the telco and without the telco. The big daddy in each one of the markets mm. was the telco. So mm. Malaysia Telecom was like the dominant stock in Malaysia at the time. And the telecommunications market was being liberalized yes. to the extent that the fixed line operators were getting into cell phones and cell phone penetration was exploding. Yes, By the time you get past the crisis, the July 97 crisis, which was a gut-wrenching event for most of us in the industry, you had a tech boom in the US, which had now spread to Asia. So Asia then swings from an economic collapse in 97 to a mini boom by 98 and early 99. Very quickly. Very quickly, yes. And by the fourth quarter of 98, because of the depreciation of the currency, to put this into perspective, the Indonesian rupiah lost 85% of its value in 97. Mm. Naturally, when you lose so much value in your currency, your exports become more competitive. By the fourth quarter of 98, the exports in the region were also becoming more competitive and they actually moved, uh, the com- countries moved to a current account surplus by the end of 98. So what, you know, having yourself live through the Asian financial crisis of 97, 98, what sort of lessons do you think you learned and what lessons did the, the region learn after that, given the fact that you just mentioned there was a boom really within sort of only, you know, one to two years later again. The biggest lesson is that when an asset loses so much value, uh, let's say uh, without even taking into account the drop in the stock price, if an Indonesian company has lost 87% of its value, there would be a day where investing in it would become a competitive thing. Mm -hmm. People who picked up pennies on the dollar in uh, 97, 98, 
eventually made a lot of money when the market turned a decade later. Yes. So that's a good lesson of sort of maybe the lesson is have cash for when uh, for sort of post-crisis investment opportunities? That's correct. You okay. need to keep your powder dry to make mm. the most of uh, opportunities. Any other lessons from, from that or is that the main one you would take highlight? The other lesson was the mismatch between the currencies. The biggest problem at that time, yes. was that there was a famous company a taxi company in Indonesia. Yes. PT Steady Safe. Yes. If I remember, they had nearly $250 million of US dollar debt. So that would seem attractive. Yes. Given the difference in the cost of capital between Indonesia in 1996, 97, and the US, where in Indonesia, the borrowing rates were in double digits. In the US, it was in single digits. Right. It would make sense given the way they liberalized the economy for that company to take on foreign debt. Well, particularly if the currencies were more or less linked or pegged to the US dollar, so you didn't see a lot of exchange rate risk. Exactly. Mm -hmm. But when the Thai baht peg was removed, it actually was removed on the day that I landed in the region in Singapore. Mm. In July 1997, all bets were off because yes. there was a cascading situation where a number of these countries could not defend their currency. That's right. And and once one domino fell, it seemed that the others were um, uh, it almost inevitably going to fall. Although I recall Malaysia was one of the holdouts. Uh, they seemed to really um, be much more protective because there was a push. You know, if you recall, the IMF came in and was like, you know, you need to liberalize your, um, I don't know, capital accounts and trade accounts and currencies. And Malaysia, as, as I recall correctly, was still quite protective of its capital account and the convertibility of its currency. And I think Prime Minister Mahathir at the time had quite a beef with uh, George Soros. Yes, he did. That's correct. Yeah. So I, I don't know if it was because of personal reasons or if they actually saw that it was sort of benefit not to fully liberalize and to keep some perhaps industries or some aspects of their monetary and financial system closed or semi-closed. Well, that actually happened a little later in a different background. But the Mahathir situation was one where uh, the Malaysian authorities uh, defied the IMF and World Bank, and imposed capital controls, which at that time was interpreted by the financial community as the death knell of Malaysia's development. Yes. However, not only did they defy the World Bank and the IMF, but they defied the skeptics But because eventually Malaysia has had a fairly steady growth trajectory in the last 25 years. Indeed, it has. And um, it's interesting um, because few countries dared or were willing or wanted to defy the IMF and the World Bank. But it's interesting, as you know, in Korea, which is one of the first countries to fall uh, in the Asia financial crisis, the Koreans refer to this not as the Asia financial crisis, but the IMF crisis. Uh, that's the term they used to describe it. I remember the first time I heard that, I was shocked. What do you mean IMF crisis? 
But the Korean perspective is that the prescriptions that the IMF exacted or imposed on Korea were so onerous that it actually it created its own crisis. And so there was a lot of antipathy towards the IMF in Korea in that period in, in 1999. I think also this idea about, you know, selling great assets to, you know, foreign investors at, a, you know, as you said, pennies on the dollar and, and perhaps the... Um, you know, in terms of the uh, employment uh, labor being, you know, a lot of people being companies going bankrupt and having to sack police, um, their workforce. So all of the problems, social problems that created, there was a lot of resentment uh, towards the IMF for what they, what people viewed as their role in creating or, or for exacerbating uh, a crisis. Yes, that's correct. Okay. So um, just take us through the next decade, uh, well, I guess maybe the next two decades, and, and then we can get to your book. So tell us about the 2000s and the 2010s. <laughs> yes. So in the 2000s, from 2004 onwards, I, I've been working as a, an equity analyst covering mostly Asia from a, the commodities perspective, from the consumer sector perspective. I've been with ABN AMRO, which later became RBS, which is where our paths crossed. I was then with Standard Chartered for another five years. Uh, since then, I've been with uh, Relega, and now for the last nearly three years, I've been with Exotics Partners, which has been rebranded as Telema. Exotics is a uh, was originally a frontier-focused investment bank and brokerage house, headquartered in London, but now it's moved to more mainstream emerging markets. So, so Nirgunan, you have really um, like three decades almost of experience uh, researching companies in the Asia region. You're, you're really in a league of your own in this regards. It's fair to refer to you as a generalist uh, or almost a, a generalist analyst uh, around all across Asia, right? Well, a generalist in the sense that I've covered commodities, I've covered consumer stocks, and now I've moved to the more e-commerce or the tech side of the business. Right. Okay. So you're a multi-sector um, analyst, uh, research analyst. So Nirgun, I, I want to make sure we discuss, you just published uh, a really um, interesting book, uh, which is titled Investing in the COVID Era, How to Spot Opportunities and Pitfalls. Um, I've read the book and what's nice about it is you cover a lot of companies. Uh, I didn't count them, but a, a few dozen different companies. And they're based on articles that you'd had published um, over the years. And um, so all kinds of situations, uh, different industries, different companies. So my first question is, I guess, A, what prompted you to write this book at this time? The main reason for writing the book, Jesse, was to advance some of the ideas that I've collected over the years through the medium of stories. The gist of the book is to popularize investment themes. You may be familiar with uh, the material that you as a fund manager or a manager of a family office receive from the sell side, which is highly statistical, very detailed, uh, very measured analysis. I flipped it around by uh, introducing the medium of stories to convey investment themes. So the point of the book is for is targeted at the the mass affluent, so to speak, who have money to invest in the stock market. You go through a lot of different uh, examples of companies, but maybe is there a theme, uh, because you talk about investing in the COVID era, so is there a, a theme that ties the different stories or different companies together that you see? 
the theme that ties the stories together is the need to understand COVID in a historic context. It is an unprecedented event, but some of the things that have taken place during COVID have happened before, and some of the issues that we've faced are certainly issues that have a lot of parallels with events of the past. So the, the gist of the book is to look at it from that perspective. I would say there are three things that you need to focus on in the COVID era. Number one, whatever has done well during COVID may not be your best investment approach or may not be the best investment ideas. So mm-hmm. let's take the example of Zoom. As you've known, the Zoom stock has risen by about 700% during the time of COVID. Their usage levels have risen exponentially. Mm. The conversation that we are having at this moment is one of the very few video conversations that have not taken place on Zoom in the last year, as far as I'm concerned. So that shows the vice-like grip that Zoom has had. However, would you invest in a company that is at 130 times revenue that has a very fickle business model that could be, which has very little differentiation between themselves and a number of other video providers, video call providers? Similarly, the e-commerce stocks or even things like Netflix have done exponentially well during this period, but we don't necessarily have to use them as the forefront of our investment teams. There are other stocks or other sectors that elicit deep value in this space. Okay, let's maybe quickly touch on another thing that you highlight, which is red flags. And, um, you know, we've known about red flags for a while where companies are, you know, sort of cooking the books, um, misleading investors, engaging in various shenanigans, perhaps malfeasance. And, you know, a famous one recently is Luck and Coffee in China which was hailed itself as sort of China's Starbucks. In fact, they said, I think they're going to surpass Starbucks in China. And they had a successful IPO, a lot of uh, enthusiasm because they seemed to have a model that was more low cost, but high quality coffee. And they, you know, use a lot of digitization. Well, it turned out that Luckin Coffee was overstating its sales growth and also that the sponsor or the promoter had, I guess, lent out a lot of his shares to, to borrow money. And that really led to the collapse of Luckin Coffee. And that's and that was in China. We've seen a number of these examples. And I'm wondering, given um, how, as you mentioned, there's a lot of these companies that are posing themselves as very high growth and high valuations. Is that a source of red flags that investors may not be looking carefully enough at some of these high-flying companies in the in this sort of COVID era? I would fully agree that uh, there is a huge scope for fraud from these companies. One of the biggest problems right now is that the market is valuing growth, the top line over the bottom line. Mm-hmm. So the growth factor in the revenue is what drives the stock price. People don't worry about whether it's cash flow positive or whether it's profitable. And Luckin mm-hmm. Coffee fell into that mold. They had the incentive to manufacture growth, to cook the books rather than brew the coffee, mm-hmm. because that's exactly what the market wanted. The yeah. second problem is a related problem, which is that people are valuing non-financial metrics. So with a lot of the Asian tech names, the Chinese tech names, 
the quarterly results focus on the number of users, the usage statistics, things which are not audited by the auditors. These are self-reported in many ways. And when things are self-reported and not subjected to independent review, there's an incentive to exaggerate the number of users by creating fake users. That creates another level of scope for fraud. So investors really should be careful when, um, particularly with these high-flying uh, companies, uh, it, it, would, it would seem that, uh, you know, we really have very, you should really be careful whether they're overstating uh, the growth that they're uh, either they already have or that they're uh, promising or indicating to investors. That's correct. Another um, thing you mentioned in your book is uh, talk about diamonds. And you referenced this wonderful movie, Marathon Man, which I enjoyed extremely with, um, with Dustin Hoffman about uh, escaped, an, uh, an escaped Nazi who, who's basically torturing um, people, you know, posing as a dentist. Uh, it's a very good story. It takes, you know, kind of takes place mostly in New York. And it highlights the, the diamond industry. And Nirgun, I know you've also, you looked a lot at precious metals. And, um, you know, there's some parallels or similarities between diamonds and precious metals because they're considered to be stores of value. And in today's world, with the monetary excesses, we can say of the central banks, you know, they've, they've grown their balance sheets, uh, you know, but multiple times, people are looking for stores of value. Some are looking at those crazy growth, growth stocks. Others are looking at stores of value, perhaps diamonds or perhaps gold or silver or perhaps Bitcoin. What's your, what's your advice to people about how to think about precious metals or, or other rare um, assets? Well, precious metals are a store of value in inflationary times. You mentioned diamonds. The issue with diamonds is that despite its popularity as a courtship, uh, as a means of courtship, uh, despite its role in the courtship rituals, it's actually been a very poor investment over the last 40 years. And in fact, that movie, Marathon Man, which was set, I think it was in 1976, uh, if you bought diamonds in 1976, you'd be down uh, in real terms by about 45%, mm -hmm. possibly even worse. The issue has been that the last 40 years have been exceptionally low in terms of inflation. Now, the question is what the situation is going to be in the next 40 years. And the likelihood is that with the monetary expansion, we could see inflation inching up gradually. If so, the precious metals such as diamonds, silver or gold may be a very good hedge against the erosion from the uh, central banks. Mm. Makes sense. Now, Nirgunan, you're based in Singapore, and Singapore economically is doing you know, fantastic. It has for multiple decades, but certain parts of Singapore's um, you know, corporations have really, I think, struggled over, you know, really a couple of decades. And you highlight the trading companies in a, in a company called Hinlong Trading, which is a, an oil uh, trading firm, which is, you know, was facing bankruptcy at the time that you wrote that piece back in, uh, you know, a year ago or so. And we've also seen, you know, firms like Wilmar, uh, which trades uh, agriculture, I think commodities, and Noble Group, which was trading uh, iron ore and uh, also some agricultural commodities. Uh, a number of these firms have basically gone belly up in Singapore. And I know it's really only a small part of the Singaporean economy. So uh, 
maybe give us a sense for, you know, um, is sort of the traditional Singapore Inc. has really, you know, due to debt and due to margin pressures, have sort of gone extinct and sort of now Singapore is much more about not traditional trading businesses, but much more about, I don't know, biotech or other ones. So give us a picture of what, what Singapore looking like now. Well, Singapore Inc. has a major stake in the Singapore economy, mm-hmm. despite uh, the rise of these trading companies. But you need to look at the trading companies in a larger picture, which is that Singapore has opened the doors to trading companies over the last, say, 20, 30 years, where Singapore gives these companies a tax holiday if they base their headquarters in Singapore. Mm-hmm. That has attracted Asian trading companies to headquarter here, as well as Western ones to bring their regional headquarters into Singapore, in some cases, their global headquarters. Right. One of the corollaries or one of the features of commodity trading is the volatility. We have seen in the midst of a commodity boom and bust, tremendous volatility in the operations of these commodity traders. And yes. Many of them, or some of them, have faced difficulties here in Singapore. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this portion of the podcast. To access the entire podcast and more high-quality analysis on Asia, please visit our website, reorientpodcast.com. That's one word, all lower caps, reorientpodcast.com.